0: Life is fragile. It's a fact we're learning in real time, every day. What we once called normal has seemingly disappeared. There's uncertainty in the air, restlessness in our hearts. Things we once took for granted are becoming difficult to find. Our usual day-to-day has evolved into this odd chaos. Peace is becoming obsolete. Many have lost jobs, security, and those they love. The pain is undeniable. But what if our fragility caused us to lean harder into God? What if in our weakness, we chose to rely more on his strength? Would our outlook change? Would the peace that passes understanding begin to drown out the noise of this moment? would we walk in a quiet confidence, knowing our God is mighty to save. We're not promised tomorrow, but we are given a simple truth to stand on. Our God goes before us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Yes, life is fragile. But in our weakness, he is strong.
1: Hello, so glad that we can participate in this worship service together. My name is Maria Unger. We're back, another week has gone by. I had to ask myself this morning, am I making the most of the time that God has given me in this very strange and unique moment of history? I'm not talking here about being busy, I'm not talking here about getting all that stuff done, getting so much done. It's gonna look different for each one of us. Am I making the most of the time that God has given me? Let's be listening for the voice of God. Let's be hiding God's word in our hearts. Let's be humbled in repentance before him. Today we've got lots of great stuff in the service. Dear Run Kids Volunteers has a message for us. Our conference, EMMC, has a word for us. And Pastor Ike is going to be introducing us to the books of Romans and Galatians. Just a small taste. There's only so much that he can do in 30 minutes. So pray that we would hunger for God's word, causing us to press into reading and studying these books of the Bible on our own. Please know also that the staff and the board are already working hard on getting ready to have services in this building. So they're waiting uh, to hear from the government and also anticipating being together again, something that we are all looking forward to. In Romans, we learn about righteousness. Paul clearly lays it out. It's very simple, actually. In four ways, Paul lays it out. First of all, no human, no humans are righteous, but Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. We have faith in Jesus, then we are freed from the power of sin, we are given a new life, and we are returned to a right relationship with God. And number four, because we have right relationship with God, we should live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. Galatians is a short letter to the people of Galatia, to the church that's in Galatia, and I wanted to pray for us as we begin this service with the exact words from the book of Galatians. So let's pray together. God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for giving yourself for our sins to rescue us as was your will. Yours is the glory forever and ever. We praise you that we are not justified by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We too have put our faith in Jesus Christ. We have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. We are your children through faith in you. That makes us heirs according to your promise. It is for freedom that you have set us free, we will stand firm and not let ourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery you told us that we must use our freedom to serve one another in love and to do that we need the spirit so we ask holy spirit that you would grow your fruit in us love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control since we live by the spirit Let us keep walking in step with your Spirit. May we never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, what counts as a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. Amen.
2: many years, missionaries and mission supporters have tilled the soil. They have planted the seeds and seen those seeds grow up into mature trees. Our Spanish mission work in LIEB has fully matured and continues to bear fruit through their own mission efforts in Bolivia. Our Low German-Bolivia ministry continues to grow and mature. The churches, schools and communities that have been the effort of the MEM team continue to come and go make disciples. They continue to see growth and leadership development. Our associate missionaries continue to share stories of what God is doing in their area of the world. Lives are being changed and we, through our associate missionaries, are a part of that. Years of faithfulness has blessed the EMMC with a rich missional history. A mission history to be remembered, but also to build from. Mission is at the core of the EMC. In a world that isolates and individualizes, we must seek to see the mission God has for us. To be relevant and to reach beyond our doors in this increasingly secure culture our young people and our pastors see the needs in their local neighborhood as missions we have had the opportunity to reach beyond our door into our neighborhoods and beyond can we connect our young people to the global missions that are the foundation of the emmc to engage and support EMM? to partner with EAB, and to learn and grow from our associate missionaries? We are called to make disciples, called to reach the lost in our neighborhoods, but also globally. How do we remain faithful to the missional core of the EMMC? By remembering the foundation laid by the mission directors of the EMMC, we thank you. By increasing the investment in resources and focus of the EMMC Home Office staff allocated to the missional work of the EMMC, by continuing to develop the role of the Mission Advisory Committee, and by being intentional about mission at our core, having missionary stories and needs and prayer requests on our lips, sharing them wherever we interact with our church members. This is for all of the EMMC, from our Home Office staff, to our leaders, to our young leaders, and moves out to each and every one of our church members. There are changes happening at the Home Office, yes, and it may look differently, but the missional core of the EMC remains at its heart. So to our many faithful mission supporters, to those who have served in missions, and to those who have been the voice of missions in our local churches, thank you. The orchards you have grown are incredible, and we get to walk through them and enjoy the fruits of your labors and to those that are committed to continue to help us develop those mission orchards, and to those that are committed to help us till new soils and plant new orchards, thank you. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Set an alarm with us on your phones, or on your calendars to 10.02. And join us in praying Luke 10.2, asking the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. Together, we, the EMMC, will remain faithful.
3: Well, today we are continuing our series in the book of Galatians and Romans, and uh, we're looking, uh, as you know, we're in the middle of this uh, study on the book of the New Testament, and uh, these two books are going to be... Um, A little bit more difficult to understand, but I'm really hoping that as we've been going through these introductions to these books, that you have been learning a lot and that uh, also that they help you to understand each of the books a little bit more carefully or more, um, more deeply, I should say. Uh, We're going to look, like I said, at the book of Galatians. Uh, We're going to look at the book of Romans and possibly two of the more difficult books in the New Testament. And they have some things in them that we don't understand and you're going to see in a little bit what I mean by that. There are certain things that are said in Galatians or even how they are said that that cause us to wrestle a little bit. We're like, well, what's going on here? And then obviously the book of Romans is just very deep theologically and doctrinally. But before we dive into these books, I, I feel... I need to take a few minutes and just look at a few things because when you study Scripture and when you read Scripture, and especially as we go into the New Testament and as we're going through the New Testament, I mean, um, there are some things that are said that are difficult to understand. And so what do you do with some of those things? And so I want to give us just a few things to consider as we study the New Testament. Um, When you're looking and when you're studying the Bible, it is important to understand who wrote Each book or who wrote each epistle or letter or whatever you want to call it. Because here's something you should know. In the New Testament, there is a book that is written by someone who would have been seen as betraying their people. There's also a couple of books written by people who would have literally been or who were the brothers, the earthly brothers of Jesus. And there's another few books, there's a few books written in the Bible that are written by a person who actually betrayed Jesus. And then there are a lot of books written in the Bible, in the New Testament I mean, by someone who actually at one time was persecuting and killing Christians. Now I don't know about you, but knowing that information, that causes one to think, well how would that life experience, how would that history, how would that person's perspective be different from someone else's? So it's important for us to look into, well who wrote every book? It's also important for us to look at when it was written, because what we do know is that history and time impacts our perception. And so there are certain books that are written during a certain time, and that will have obviously influenced the perception and and the way that the person wrote. Another thing to consider is who were the recipients of each of these books, because some things were said to some people that were not necessarily said to others or weren't said in the same way. So again, important for us to understand these things. And then you have the whole concept of language because we're reading the Bible in English, but they were translated to us either from Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. And so again, just having an understanding of the language in which the books were written is really, really important to us. And so all of these are part of what we want to call, or what we call, doing proper hermeneutics. Now, what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is simply a fancy way of saying, the, the, way of saying what helps us understand the scriptures in the here and now. It's easy for us to read a passage of Scripture and assume that we understand what it means when in fact it may not have been what the original author intended it to mean. So doing hermeneutics is a, is a way of doing a study of the Scriptures to understand what it means for us in the here and now. And so when doing hermeneutics, we must do a correct exegesis of Scripture. Now, what is exegesis? It's the careful, systematic study of scripture to discover the original intended meaning. So to understand the original meaning, we must understand the historical context. What was happening in that time? What was the original intent of the words that were said in the Bible? Because You cannot take modern values, you cannot take modern belief systems and force the Bible to say what we want them to say. The Bible must influence our beliefs and our values, not the other way around. And so it's really, really important then for us to do a careful search of what was the original intent, what was the author saying in order for us to do proper hermeneutics. To properly understand a verse in the and, or a passage in the Bible we need to pull it apart we need to look at it from all the different angles you angles you you have to kind of dig into it sometimes you have to do a word study sometimes you have to do all kinds of deep studies and, and I don't know if you've ever watched the Marvel um, movies but you have this this person named Tony Stark he's, he's Iron Man and what you see Tony Stark often do is he he pulls these things open you know apart he puts them on the screen and then he, he walks around them kind of like Like you see in the picture, he's walking around them, looking at them from all the different angles. And that's something that we need to do with scripture. You need to pull it apart. You need to look at it from all the different angles. But here is an important thing to remember. You have to be able to put it back together. You can't take one verse in the Bible and say, well, I understand this to say this and this and this. You have to put it back together. You have to fit it back into Scripture. And the most important thing to remember is that once you've put it back together, it must line up with the rest of Scripture. You cannot have one verse in the Bible that is not in line with what the rest of Scripture is teaching. And so it's very, very important that you do proper hermeneutics, pulling Scripture apart and then putting it back together so that it lines up with what Scripture teaches. And so I want to give you just a few examples on why it is so important to do this because there are certain passages in Scripture that can easily be misused. And I want to give you one from one of the books that we're actually going to look at today, uh, Romans chapter um, 8, and this is a very, very popular passage. It's it's often been misused, and so what we normally see people do is they'll take one verse and they combine another verse, and the goal is to make Scripture say what we want it to say. So here's just an example of of how easy it is to take, combine some verses, and make it say something that we want it to say. Romans chapter 8, verses 37. It says this, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. I'm sure most of you here have heard that verse used. And usually they don't even read the whole passage. They just go that far. So then, now, let's unpack this. What well, it says right there that we are more than conquerors. So what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? What is a conqueror? Well, a conqueror is someone who overcomes. So in order to be more than a conqueror, it means that we're going to actually do more than just overcome. We're going to go beyond overcoming. So this was written to the... People in Rome. And so then you start thinking, well, what were the Romans like? Well, the Romans were these people who took what they wanted. No one stood in their way. They used their might to get whatever they want. So people who are reading this verse would look at this and say, I get what this is saying. This means that I can just go and claim things. I can go tackle things. I can take things, whatever I want. So boom, they've established this understanding of what this verse means. Now what they do, and you see people do this all the time, They do the hermeneutics. They now say, well, this is what it means for me. And then they inject their here and now into this verse. And what I mean with that is they'll take things like their finances. They'll take politics. They'll take all kinds of things that are going on in their lives. And they're saying, well, the Bible says I'm more than a conqueror. And then what they like doing is they like to jump a few verses ahead And they grab verse 31, and in verse 31 it says that if God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, that is an amazing verse, and we love that verse. And so now what they've done is they've got this definition of what it means to be a conqueror, taken and injected all these different things from their earthly life and then they find this other verse that says, well, if God is for me, who can be against me? And they conclude that I can basically claim anything in my life. If there's hardship in my life, I am more than a conqueror. God is for me. Therefore, I can overcome everything. And the question I would ask you, is that what Paul was saying? Is that what Paul was saying in these verses? And the answer is not even close. Not even close. Paul is speaking here to spiritual victory. Something spiritual. Paul is referring to here is what Paul is referring to here is our spiritual victory in Jesus. That in Jesus, we have victory and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can stand between the victory that Jesus gave us on the cross and in his resurrection. But that doesn't mean that we can take all kinds of physical, earthly things, put it into this verse and say, it says right there, I am more than a conqueror, so therefore my finances should be okay, my health should be okay, everything should be okay in my life. Because that's not what Paul is saying. Now why is this important to understand? Because the danger with misusing verses like these is that it leaves us disappointed with God. We'll we'll, we'll find people saying, well, why didn't God come through for me? Why didn't God do what he says in the Bible? And, And he never said that he would fix all of our problems. What Paul is referring to there is something spiritual, not physical. So as we look at the Pauline epistles especially, it is really, really important that we do proper hermeneutics, to understand what was the intention of the of the original writings, and what are we supposed to do? What is the meaning for us today? There are a number of verses in the Bible that are difficult to understand. As a matter of fact, there are some verses in the Bible I just don't quite get. I don't know what they mean. So we cannot just simply, you know, look at verses in the Bible and assume that we can understand them without de- uh, studying them and, and really spending time working through them. There's lots of examples, but I want to give you a few of how Scripture can also be misused to literally abuse and hurt people. Here's, here's another group of verses or a couple of verses that people sometimes put together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 5, it says this. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And then people that use that verse, and usually it's against people who've done something wrong, then people will use that that verse, and then they also add in verse 11. And it says in verse 11, the last part, do not even eat with such a person. People combine these two verses Never taken into account that Paul is speaking here about two very different issues. Paul is addressing two very different issues. In the first verse, he is addressing a a particular man who was involved in an incest. And instead of the church being outraged at this despicable act, they seem to be proud of him. In the second passage, Paul is referring to people who claim to be Christians but continue to live an immoral lifestyle. And now they want to participate in all of the things that are going on in the church, including communion. And so Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. And yet what people have done is they have combined these two verses and they have established a system of shunning people for all kinds of things. I know of people that attend this church who have been shunned by family because they attend this church. I know of people who have been shunned for having electricity, for having radio, for having the internet, all kinds of things, for being divorced. And we've shunned them and we've used verses like this to justify our our decisions and and, and, uh, the things that we're doing. And I would suggest to you today that that wasn't a blanket statement that Paul was giving for all issues that we face. So these verses were written for a very specific purpose. And so we need to make sure that we don't use those verses to, um, to cause pain and hurt in people's lives. So there's just a, I could talk about that a lot more, there's just a quick little um, overview of of why it is so important to study scripture, why it is important for us to wrestle with the text, to understand what it means for us today, and to also understand what was the original intent of the author. And so at this time now, we're going to dive into the book of Galatians, and so if you need to just, you know, that was a long introduction, but if you need to quickly go grab a coffee, you can pause here, and from here we're going to go into the book of Galatians, and then into the book of Romans. Moments. And so let's look at the book of Galatians. This epistle is often referred to as Paul's angry letter because quite literally he has nothing good to say about these churches. Okay? He really says nothing. There is no happy greeting to them. There is none of the things that you see in some of the other epistles. They're just not existent in this this book. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, I mean, sorry, in chapter 3, verses 1, Paul actually refers to them as, you foolish Galatians. You got to understand, the Galatians are the buffoons of the New Testament. They are these people who seem to be able to do nothing right. So let's stop for a moment and ask ourselves, so who are the Galatians? Who are these people? Well, that's not that easy to answer. The reason is because it doesn't really tell us because it's not writing, you know, to, to one church. Um, and so it's, it's not so clear and it's not so easy to understand. So let's first start with what we know for sure. What we know for sure is, like I said, Paul is not writing to one particular church, but rather to a number of congregations in the Roman province that, province that is located in modern-day Turkey. The Romans called the entire province Galatia, and you can see it there on the map. The entire province was called Galatia by the Romans. But what is interesting, that only the people who lived in the north called themselves Galatians. So, who are these Galatians? We we are not totally sure. According to Acts chapter 13, we know that Paul visited the southern parts of Galatia, but he never ventured north. Now, some believe that he may have gone north on a second missionary journey that you see in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, and chapter 18, verse 23, but it isn't very clear. So we don't know for sure. We know he went to Galatia, but we don't know if he ever really ventured to the north where the people call themselves Galatians. Another important question that remains unanswered was, did the Apostle Paul write this epistle to the Galatian churches before or after the council of Jerusalem that you see in Acts chapter 15. And we know that the council in Jerusalem wrestled with the question of what do we do with Gentiles who are becoming believers? What do we do with these Gentiles who are, who are starting to follow Jesus? Now, we know this for certain, that all of the, the people that um, Paul is writing to here in the book of Galatians, they were all Gentiles, And so there's a number of things that we don't know, but there are some things that we do know. And one thing that we do know for certain is that Paul is not happy with these people. So let me read to you a few verses from Paul's introduction to give you a feel for this epistle, for this letter. Now, I want you to look for a few things. First thing, I want you to look at, in these first ten verses I'm going to read, what was Paul's mood? Just You'll notice it almost immediately. The other thing to look for is how he defends his authority and how he stands by the gospel that he has been preaching. And so, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Let's, let's take a look. It starts like this. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under a curse. Now, I want to pause here for just a second. I mean, he used some strong language, so some of you kids, like, I, I apologize, but what Paul is literally saying here is anyone who is preaching a gospel other than the one he is preaching, when he says, let them be under God's curse, that, is, that actually means, let them go to hell. That gives you a sense of how angry Paul is and how, how um, determined he is for people to understand what, what, he, is, what he is saying here. Verse 9. As we have already said, so now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And there it is again. Verse 10. Now, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now that gives you and I. A little feel for the tone of this book. He, he just comes out swinging immediately. And, and we understand almost immediately that this guy is so unhappy with this congregation or these congregations. So let's ask a question that we need to answer then. What is going on? What is happening? Why is he so upset? What we understand is that early Christians... That in early Christianity, there were Jews who became believers in Jesus. But these Jews believed that if you wanted to be a follower of Jesus, you could become a Christian and believe in Jesus. But you had to also become Jewish. Because they believed that only Jewish people could be saved. So if you gave your life to Jesus, fantastic. But that meant that you needed to also become Jewish. And this would have required people then to receive circumcision, the men to receive circumcision, and to live their lives according to the Torah, to the Jewish law. Those who were spreading this gospel, those who were spreading this information or or this teaching, they were called Judaizers. And this teaching from these people goes against the gospel that Paul has been teaching. Another important point of contention is that these Judaizers seem to be challenging Paul's authority. They're basically saying, who is this man to say these things? Who is this man to present this gospel? And they would even reference and say, Paul was one of the last people to become apostles, and so maybe he misunderstood. And so, before Paul can even def- you know, go into some of the theological issues, he has to start by defending his own authority. Who is he to say these things? And so Paul starts by defending his own authority. Those who opposed to him, they were you know, throwing all kinds of accusations at him. And so here he has to defend his authority. Because they were saying that he was receiving his authority from the people in Jerusalem. And that the other apostles were giving him this authority. And so in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Paul goes into great detail. Even giving a timeline of when he met the other apostles, what they talked about, and is very clear that he did not receive his gospel from them. In chapter 1, verse 12, he states that he received his revelation from Jesus Christ. And you will notice that he also, in the book of Galatians, he references Cephas. And Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. And Peter would have been seen as a super-apostle. And so what Paul does is he he tells this story in chapter 2 of when he opposed Peter in Antioch. And he's willing to share this story just to make his point that if somebody goes against the, the teachings of Jesus, that he is willing to oppose them, even if it is someone as important as Peter. So Paul is really making his case and saying, I am not receiving my authority from any man. I received my authority from God, from Jesus Himself. And it would appear that Paul and Peter had a bit of a feisty relationship. They respected each other, but they didn't always agree and they didn't always get along. And there are some who even viewed them as competitors. So Paul starts by defending his authority, but he also has to defend his teaching. The gospel he preaches does not go against the disciples in Jerusalem, nor does it go against the Torah. Rather, he argues that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and now Jesus, that now in Jesus, we are all one. And so Paul spends significant time defending his, his authority and also defending his, uh, the gospel that he teaches. But it's not all just about Paul in this book. He outlines some very important theological topics. One of the most well-known from this epistle is the fruit of the Spirit, found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22. And Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. What the Spirit produces in us, the law can never affect. This book, the book of Galatians, became central um, during the, you know, it became central to the uh, doctrinal controversies that characterize the Protestant Reformation. Uh, During the 1500s, when the Protestant Reformation happened, the book of Galatians plays a significant role in the leaders of the Reformation. For example, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others applied the teachings in Galatians. And it shaped their theology, especially topics around the works of the law. And if you know your history at all, you know that in the, during the um, Reformation, the church at that time was really controlling people again, spiritually controlling them. And the priest had all the authority, and in a sense, they had gone back to a law system. And so the, you know, the Protestant reformers, they they pushed against that. And the book of Galatians played a significant role in them developing their theological views. So that's, again, very brief look into the book of Galatians. Let's look now at the book of Romans. Romans is written to the church in Rome. Pretty simple to understand that. And it's a congregation that Paul has never met. And you read, as you go through the book of Acts, you read that Paul wanted to visit this church a number of times, but he was repeatedly hindered from doing so. The book of Romans has a reputation for being Paul's most difficult letter to understand. Romans reveals just how brilliant of a thinker Paul was. It would appear that there were already a surprising number of believers in Rome um, by the year 49. Okay? And uh, in the year 39, Claudius expelled the Jewish people from Rome for the disturbance that is referred to as a disturbance over Christus by the historian um, Suetonius. Many believe that the reference to the word Christus means Christos, which is Greek for Christ. And so this means, if this is true, this means that 20 years after Christ's death, there were already enough Christians in Rome that they were able to create a disturbance worthy of the emperor's attention. And so that's pretty significant. That means that a lot of people in Rome had already become followers of Jesus Christ. Claudius dies in 54 and after his death the Jews that he had expelled began to trickle back or begin to move back into Jerusalem along with the Christian Jews who who had been forced to leave. It is believed that Paul wrote Romans around 57 and 58 and may have been, you know, he may have written this while he was in Corinth near the end of his third missionary journey. It is clear from the book of Acts that Paul's goal is, his intentions are to go to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem he plans to go to Rome and then from Rome he is hoping to go on one more missionary journey or on another missionary journey to Spain and that doesn't quite turn out the way he had planned. Um, sadly, it would not happen. Paul would end up in Rome, but not as a free man, rather as a prisoner under guard according to Acts chapter 28 um, verses 16. And you may remember when Paul was, in, when Paul was captured or accused, um, he's a Roman citizen So he appealed to Caesar, meaning that he had to stand trial under a Roman court, and that is why he was sent to Rome. So this was something that, you know, had a big impact. And so when Rome, I mean, sorry, when Paul arrived in Rome in 60, um, the church would have already had a copy of his book for at least two years. Rome at the time was the epicenter of the world. Rome was the might, Rome was the wealth, Rome was the politics, you name it and you would find it or it was somehow connected to Rome. My family and I, we've had the privilege of walking through the Roman Forum and it is, it is absolutely inspiring to this day. This is where the world went to do business and this may explain why this book is so deep and so complex because many of the people in Rome would have been far more educated so why did Paul write this book to the Romans? What was, what was the reasoning behind his writing? He may have wanted to introduce himself because again, he's never been there. So he wants to introduce himself, but he may have also wanted to share with them his desire to go to Spain and, and possibly he was hoping that they would pay for that trip or help him and support him financially for that trip. Some have also suggested that the Roman Christians may have been somewhat suspicious of Paul's teaching, of Paul's writings or, or of, of the, the things that he believed, especially the, the gospel of law, the law-free gospel. So along with introducing himself, he wants to clarify what he means by that. Just because there are, you know, just because we are no longer under the law doesn't mean that we can continue to sin. And as you will see in the book of Romans, he writes about that extensively. He may have also wanted to help with the reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles um, in, in, the, in the city of Rome. Remember, the Jewish people were expelled, meaning that the Gentile Christians remained in. In Rome, the Christians weren't just expelled, all of the Jews were expelled. That means that the, the Christian Jews were expelled as well, and so the Christian Gentiles were allowed to stay in Rome. And then, years later, when the Jews came back into Rome, Obviously, the church would have been shaped by Gentile thinking. And so this created a lot of tension between the, uh, the Jewish people or the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And so it's possible that Paul wanted to write to this church and just um, you know, try to help with the reconciliation between these two groups. So what I want to do now is just take a few minutes and look at some of the major themes that you find in this book. Um, There's a lot of them. It's a very, very complex book, but let's look at just some of the major themes. One of the major themes is the righteousness of God. In chapter 1 and 2, we read about God's wrath, how God gave people over to their sinful desires, but just because God gave them over to these desires doesn't mean that God's okay with that. Doesn't mean that God's okay with sin. So Paul is very clear that there is no excuse, but that at the same time, God is generous. And, you know, he is generous beyond measure and salvation is available to all people. So this is a a significant theme in the book of Romans. Another significant theme or important theme is justification by faith. To be justified means to, have, to be in the right relationship with God. It is closely related to forgiveness. And throughout Rome, uh, Romans, Paul presents justification as a consequence of divine faithfulness. We are not justified by our works, but by our faith. And But that doesn't mean that we should continue to sin. And so you'll hear Paul say, you know, should we sin all the more so that, you know, grace may abound? And he's like, no, 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 you know. And so we are justified by faith. And this is, a, again, a key focus of the book of Romans. Another major theme is the universal availability of salvation. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 could possibly be seen as the theme verse for the book of Romans, but definitely the theme verse for this theme. Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And you see Paul over and over state that the gospel is available to all people, but he also points out that all have sinned. No person is righteous. It doesn't matter whether you are Gentile or whether you are Jew. We are all under sin. And the only way for us to receive salvation is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died for everyone. And then another major theme is death and resurrection. Paul makes a clear connection between justification and salvation. With the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul interprets Christian baptism... As a participation in the death and the resurrection of Christ. He points out that sin, that that the sin that was brought into the world by one man, let me say that again differently. He points out that sin was brought into the world by one man, Adam, meaning that all of us are sinful because of one person's decision. But then he also points out that if one man can bring sin into the world, then one person, Jesus, can bring salvation to the entire world. And so it's this importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus is throughout the book. Another theme that is, is in the entire book, isn't in the entire book, it's more focused only on one section, but it plays a significant part, and that is the theme of obedience to the government. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 7, Paul speaks about obedience to government authority. This passage is often cited to, to, you know, in in the context of church and state and, and the conflict that somehow seems to be about that. In essence, Paul is telling Christians not to resist political rulers because they have been put in place by God. Now that sounds so simple, doesn't it? Because there it is, Paul says it, you know, that we should, you know, obey our rulers because God has put them there. Not that simple at all, actually. Paul's statement invites comparison with what is said in other parts of the New Testament. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the devil is tempting Jesus... Satan claims to be responsible for installing rulers over the kingdoms of the earth. And he gives Jesus the opportunity to choose which kingdom he wants to rule over. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't refute Satan's claim. Instead, Jesus says that we should worship the Lord our God only. And in other words, he's saying we shouldn't worship power or authority. And so this has created some confusion. Why would Jesus not have pushed back against these, this statement by, by Jesus? Then, I mean, sorry, by Satan. Then we also see in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 29, the apostles declare, we must obey God rather than human beings. And guess who they said that to? To the authorities of that time, to the Jewish authorities, to the Sanhedrin, who were telling them not not to preach the gospel of Jesus anymore. So this has created a lot of debate, and debate rages on around these verses to this day. And like I said in the opening, it is very important that we do proper hermeneutics with these kinds of passages. And not all verses are easy to understand. Now let me complicate these verses even more because there's something that you should think about or consider uh, when you look at these verses. It is possible that Paul wrote these, um, you know, these um, instructions to the church during the early years of Emperor Nero's reign. This was a time when Nero was still exercising relatively good behavior towards Christians. But within a few years, Nero would become a tyrant that would be responsible for unimaginable persecution against Christians. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul himself likely died in the wave of persecution that Nero um, held against the, uh, the Christians in Rome. So here's a question that we need to just wrestle with. Would Paul have written the same thing if he would have seen the monster Nero would become? Now, I want to be careful here, because obviously, I believe that Scripture is, you know um, inspired by God, that every word in Scripture is inspired by God, but I also believe that God inspired the timing of which things were written because Timing would have impacted Paul's views. And so it's important for us to take these things into consideration. And I want to look at just one more theme, and it's not necessarily a major theme throughout the entire um, book of Romans, but I think it's something that is um, important for us to notice, and that is Paul's reference to women. In chapter 16, Paul gives what could be viewed as a list of greetings or credits. And what is noteworthy is that in this lengthy list um, that Paul puts out, he highlights 10 women for their work in the church. Three of them are especially noteworthy. You have Phoebe, Paul sends. The letter with her and commends her to the congregation, meaning that the book of Romans, he literally gave her a copy of it and said, I want you to take it to the people of Rome. And and she did. And so this was a person, he identifies her as a deacon in her church and as a benefactor of many. Another person is Priscilla. She, alone, along with her husband, risked her life for Paul and earned the thanks of the churches. She is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament and it should, be, should not be overlooked that her name is mentioned ahead of her husband's, which was not common in that day. And then you have Junia. Junia is mentioned together with um, Andronia, uh, and I can't say his name right now, Um, their relationship is somewhat ambiguous. Uh, He may have been her husband, um, a sibling, or maybe he was a member of the missionary team. But either way, what is amazing is that Junia is referred to as outstanding among the apostles, and as being in Christ before I was. Meaning that she would have seen Christ during his ministry here on this earth and was very likely at pentecost when the holy spirit came upon his disciples so as i said earlier it is important for us to recognize the work that these women did in the church but what i want to focus on for a moment is paul is often seen as a woman hater as someone who was against women in in ministry someone who was against women doing work in the church but We have to wrestle with the question, if if Paul was against women doing ministry in the church, then why does he ask the church to recognize and appreciate the work that the women were doing here? Why does Paul in one book tell women to be silent, and another book ask the church to show their appreciation for the work that the women are doing in the church? And again, I want to just pause here for a moment and remind us that some of these things are not always that easy to understand. And this is why it is so important to do proper hermeneutics. And as we continue going through the New Testament, I hope that you dive into each book. I hope that you study it carefully, but do not take your values of today and inject them. Allow scripture to change how we believe and what we believe and to form our thinking. And just as a quick plug, our church provides right now media for you. And if you want, you can dive into, you know, you open that up and, and subscribe, and it's all free. You can find it on our website, dearrun.church and they have tons of great information on, on the New Testament and on other, other um, topics. And so as we conclude, I want to just challenge us to do this. Read the Bible, gather information, and take special care to listen not to what you want it to say but to what, was in, what it intended to say to us. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you, God, for um, all this information that we have on these books. And I just pray, Lord, that as we just jammed through so much of this in such a quick time, that you would have spoken to us, that you would have revealed things to us. And I pray that as we study your word, that we would not um, get, make it say what we want it to say, but that we would allow you to speak to us and to change our thoughts, to th- change our thinking, to develop our theology, and that, that it would be in line with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the day.